you doing, Sarah? All good, thank you. How'd you get on with JFK? Well, I squeezed it into two or three viewings, so that's a success. I did manage to watch it before this podcast. Yeah, pretty heavy three stuff. Three hours, yeah, yeah three hours, a, nine minutes. It was a whopper. Quite heavy compared to Wonder Woman 1984, let's just say that. <laughs> we'll come on to that later. Yeah, definitely. Right, pop quiz. Boop, boop. No messing around, pop quiz, straight I in know, there. Straight into it. Right, you have five seconds to answer this question. Okay. And it ties in nicely with some of the films that we've been watching okay. over this last week. So first one, five seconds, name three films with the title beginning with the letter J. JFK, Jumanji, Jungle Book. Oh, well done. <laughs> Squeeze in the jungle. Very, very sorry. I could have gone for Jumanji 2 as well, I suppose. Uh, the second one. Oof. Welcome to the Jungle, wasn't it, the first one? Yeah. Good, was... right, second one. Okay. Second one, are you ready? Yeah. That oh, was my child like screaming. Did you there? hear that? It's like someone died in the background. <laughs> <laughs> it's mission control at, the, at my that's, household at the that's moment. How you, that's how you control children, everyone. Nothing wrong with that's a quick gaming strangle. gaming for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's gaming for you. So, next question. Yep. How many DC films were there from 20... 20- Right, I'll tell you why we're laughing. I'm going to tell all the listeners why we're laughing. The reason why we're laughing is because we've already practiced these questions. <laughs> and Rob doesn't want to do it again. I'm going to twist it. I'm going to change okay, it. No, I'm going to change it. Hang on, hang on. No, 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 Films beginning with J we hadn't done before. That was that was fresh because it was A before. You changed to J. Just want to make that clear. Okay, so now do a different, come on, a different question. And why, why are we having to repeat these questions then, Rob? Because some idiot forgot to press record once we started the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who that could be. Uh, Excellent. Right. right then. Okay. Between 2010 and 2020... Name three Marvel films. Oh, Marvel films. Deadpool, um, Avengers, Infinity War. Five seconds. Go. Oh, Thor. A Thor. Oh, I forgot I had five ah. seconds. Listen to me, Thor. Ah. It says Thor. <laughs> Let me, um, Marvel. I wasn't prepared for that. Neither was I. So I'm to look up the films from 2010 to Mind 2020. Mind you, that is the whole point of the question. Is, is obviously I'm not prepared for it, but uh, yeah, me, my uh... mind went blank. The thing is, all of the titles are like Avengers, and then the title of the film. That's the problem. I can't remember. I could have just gone Deadpool, Deadpool Two, and Avengers: Infinity War. So we've got Iron Man 2010, Iron Man Two 2011, Iron Man Three in 2012. Why wow, they shot them back to back, didn't they? The Avengers in 2012. You could have had Thor. Yeah, the Dark World. You could have had. Oh gosh, you've done so much more than the DC side. So yeah. Anyway, you did pretty well. So, should we talk about JFK? Yeah, let's go heavy and then finish with lights. So, JFK, released in 1991. It's three hours and nine minutes, everyone. So, you can do it in several sittings or a whole 
whole sitting, which I may have done actually when I went to the cinema and watched this for the first time. It was quite numbum syndrome, I have to say. Directed by uh, Oliver Stone, written by Oliver Stone, Zachary Schuyler, book by Jim Garrison on the trail of the assassins and another book, Jim Mars Crossfire, the plot that killed Kennedy. So two books uh, were integrated to make this film. So it's starring Kevin Costner, Gary Oldman, Jack Lemmon, Walter Matthau, Sissy Spacek, Laura Metcalf, Laurie Metcalf, sorry, who was in Roseanne and Scream and Toy Story. We've got uh, Michael Rooker from Guardians of the Galaxy and The Walking Dead. We've got Kevin Bacon, John Candy, Donald Sutherland, Joe Pesci, Tommy Lee Jones, etc., etc. There are so many stars in this film wanting to tell the JFK story, which I think is brilliant. On the 22nd of November in 1963, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested straight after and was shot by Jack Ruby actually after because he was apparently avenging the president's death. But things didn't seem as they should. And three years after the assassination, Jim Garrison, DA of New Orleans and Louisiana, who was played by Costner, assembled a group of trusted colleagues to investigate further, which we then follow them over a six year period, I believe. Um, many strange things happen connections with Oswald, being killed off, threats, wrongful arrests, corruption, unveiling that the government and military were involved somewhere in the long the lines and it just highlights almost like a it was a coup really and similarities to Julius Caesar as well being assassinated in the way he was. Kennedy was seen as a communist supporter in many ways and the Americans were kind of loving him. What I find really strange is it can only assume it was the CIA and the military were getting involved. So you kind of have to pinch yourself really through this film because it's a true story and what you think is a gangster movie is actually, it's not, it's just corruption that happened with the military and the CIA, etc. and and the government itself. So it's quite shocking really when you, you delve more into detail. You have to really concentrate through this three hours and nine minutes film. It's cleverly written and directed. I had to stop and quite often debrief with my husband when we were watching it. I like some films just wash over me, whereas this you really had to concentrate. So I did stop and start it quite regularly. Be curious actually, Rob, whether you got everything at one time or whether you had to stop and digest and then move on as well. So it's won two Oscars, cinematography and best film editing. It was nominated for best supporting actor, director, sound, original score best picture but nothing for Kevin Costner I was really surprised by that it was really the year of the science of the land so Anthony Hopkins got uh, best actor and uh, there was the Fisher King there was City Slickers there was Terminator 2 and Bugsy what a year for great films I have to say but JFK outstanding Rob I'd love to get your thoughts I kind of knew what to expect with this because it's Oliver Stone film. I, I had it's another one of these ones. I suppose I'm saying this so often, as you can probably tell if people listen to this regularly. I don't tend to watch films twice, so this was the second time I'd seen it again yeah. since it came out. And the things I remember it for then are exactly the same things that resonated with me this time round. I think what struck me straight away is just how confident this film is in terms of the whole production of it. And technically, the way it's been put together is so good. The use of quick cut editing, the sound, the mainstay of it obviously is colour, but they use a lot of black and white shots. Then they also use newsreel archive the use of music. It has this incredible, stirring, patriotic score by John Williams. Kevin Costner's performance 
it's just a watertight performance from Costner, I think. But what struck me as watching it again, I suppose, is just how much information is being delivered by all of the characters. There is so much dialogue in this, and there's almost no room for breath. There's occasional scenes where you might have Jim Garrison taking a walk or in front of a monument in a very, you know, in deep thought or those personal moments when he's with his family in the evening. But apart from that, it's intense. It's with his staff. It's so much of it is learning evidence as it comes in and the way they use so many of these montage techniques, even though it's three hours, nine minutes, it still crams so much into that running time. And it felt almost like two films to me. You know, yes, you had, it's so impactful, isn't it? The famous footage of the assassination of, of Kennedy and the aftermath And then very quickly, three years later, we pick up Jim Garrison, who decides to open the case for Kennedy assassination, having seen a lot of inconsistencies from the Warren report. So he builds the case and in doing so, interviews witnesses, et cetera, et cetera, which leads to the courtroom. And it feels like two sections, like the courtroom itself and the courtroom drama and then everything Mm. up to it. So do you think it should have been shot in two films, like uh, Lord of the Rings? (laughs) I don't it's slightly think, different, obviously, but, you know. I don't think so, because you need the payoff. It feels like the, the courtroom is the reward for sticking with everything leading up to that, because, as you say, there's a lot of information to take in. I actually found that although the script does the best job it can to try and compact all this information in a way in which it can be understood, you're right, you do have to listen, listen to listen. And I must admit, I kind of zoned out every now and again because I didn't really want I to did. stop. I didn't really want to stop the film. And I actually found that the scene where Jim Garrison meets this mysterious ex, this ex-FBI military guy, and he sits down and he basically spills all this information to Garrison and in actual fact I actually thought whilst I was listening to all of this and when you got to the end of it I thought well that pretty much if, if you literally wanted to understand what the case was built on I think I don't know if that scene is almost deliberately meant to write right now let's summarize everything that we've been maybe, up to yeah and just maybe. listen to just listen to Donald Southern uh, which I mm-hmm. thought was one of the most compelling scenes in it and he also learned all that script off by heart no breaks well that and that is incredible because yeah. of all of the support cast in this of which as you say what makes this film so good yes costner is i mean this is this is in his purple patch mm-hmm. such a presence i mean if you don't like costner and his maybe slightly kind of monotone southern american drawl whatever because some people don't because he does tend to talk in the same way in most films. But if you like Costner, this is he's in full-on Costner mm. mode. He's such a good <laughs> performance. But then, like you say, these little cameo roles from Joe Pesci and Tom Lee Jones and Kevin Bacon, and uh, they're all good. But when that Donald Sutherland scene mm. comes mm. along, I, I found it mesmerising. Yeah. And all it was is two guys on a bench and one of them talking to the other. That's all it was, really. Mm-hmm. And it went on for some time, but, you, but they still yeah. managed to make it because they cutting away again to news archive. And I think that did a real job for me because I wasn't sure about everything leading up to it in terms of the ins and outs of this whole conspiracy theory. I almost thought, well, brilliant. Mr. X, yeah. Donald Southern just basically explained everything. And then yeah. it ran into the courtroom drama part of the film. I remember the scene where he talks about the magic bullet and they rerun 
the archive of the bullet yeah. hitting Kennedy and, you know, literally blowing his head off. And when he's trying to make the point that the bullets come like up at him and to the right and they keep jogging it up and to the right, up and to the right. And you see that same clip, the famous frame of the newsreel, it's called frame 313. And interestingly, that piece of footage that's in JFK, that everyone knows, it wasn't like filmed by any of the networks. It was filmed by some garment worker who was also this amateur filmmaker who happened to capture it all, and he happens to be in the right mm. position. And he ended up selling this uh, Life magazine, bought the rights to that newsreel for $50,000. And that was such a powerful part of the film where you keep seeing it. You see it like three or four times, and it really is, is incredibly powerful. But, I mean, I do think it is important to say that, and you touched on it here, this did have some inaccuracies in it. And and as a result, you you can point to flaws in it. So, for example, uh, some of the witness characters, he's embellished on those witnesses. And there are things that are portrayed by those witnesses that happened to them that didn't happen in real life. We do know that now. And although it's kind of undisputed now, and especially with investigations and reanalysis that mm. followed this film, that well, followed the assassination, the general consensus is, even by official channels, is that, you know, there probably was a conspiracy. So yeah. it's like the outcome is probably undisputed, but the nature yeah. of how Stone's story is put to the world, if you like, has been referred <laughs> to as the greatest lie Hollywood ever told or a masterful mm. blend of fact and fiction. I think it's important to say that because when I first watched this I was a lot younger and it's so compelling you just kind of thought wow I mean that's what is really interesting is that um the assassination disclosure act comes publicly available in 2029 so not long now that we'll be able to see all these files but the only thing is is I bet there'll be something that will delay it even another 50 years because it's so soon it's not really that long after his death really it's just seemed to whiz by but I think it's going to open a whole can of worms if they let people just access these files to be honest and what was really interesting I saw Trump revealed some of the the highlights in 2017 which he called the JFK files. I don't see what was released there. I haven't been able to identify what came out of that. I don't know whether you've got any input on that. No, I saw the same thing. Mm. I think I read that. I don't know. I can't believe with everything that is still to be disclosed, I'm sure so much of it's been... It'll, yeah. Probably been, yeah, exactly. I, th- I suppose the, the biggest thing that stands out with this is the story itself that this actually happened. You know, you've got the assassination of John F. Kennedy on, you know, on film. And you think about the moon landing, people will think about JFK if they were, if people Mm -hmm. who were, who remember seeing that newsreel. I mean, it's phenomenal to see that as a live news event. Yeah. And it comes across to me, especially when then after that, you know, you've got Lee Oswald being shot um, that was also live. And, and also following that, of course, the tragic assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. And that moment when Garrison Costner's character is at home and the news comes in that Robert Kennedy has been shot and his reaction to that. I actually found that quite impactful because mm-hmm. it's it, like a gain. You know, it's almost like the, the dream, you know, the American dream was was in some way severely dented with the assassination of John F. Kennedy to then have his brother, Bobby Kennedy, yeah. also shot. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine just how 
emotional that Mm. must be for a country. So they asked Jim Garrison once whether he believes the government killed Martin Luther King Jr., Robert Kennedy, as well as JFK, and he claims the government did. So um, there's a lot of tension to detail in this film. The on-location shooting as well. Got um, the murder of Oswald by Jack Ruby was filmed in the actual basement garage of Dallas City Hall. And the arrest was in the Texas theatre. That was all on location. There's also the person that played the wife of Lee Harvey Oswald, played by Beta Polsniak. And she studied everything about his wife, even read 26 volumes of the Warden's Commission report and even lived with the lady to get to know her. So that's, I mean, she wasn't in it for very much of the film, but she obviously went to town and wanted to know, you know, the details about this lady. I've already mentioned Donald Sutherland and him learning all the scripts, but so was uh, Kevin Costner. He was one for learning all the script and just delivering it all. The actual film was shot in 72 days and they must have used so much real footage that was taken from that cine camera or whatever. Gosh, it must have been a whole, imagine the editing that would have been involved, all those little snippets, when to crop cut it and uh, stitch it all together it must have been a real job and no wonder that they won um, best film editing because it must have been a huge job what i did find really interesting (laughs) is um that charles harlson was hitman convicted on three separate occasions and involved with jfk as well and it's woody harrelson's dad i never knew that there was a connection there at all so Woody Harrelson's dad was actually one of the convicted hitmen on this JFK job. And then it's got some of the great actors in this. You've got Joe Pesci, you've got John Candy as well, both in their purple patch, let's call it. And I just have to say, I loved David Furry, who was played by Joe Pesci's eyebrows. (laughs) They were immense, weren't they? Sort of semicircular around his face. And you know what? He really does look like that. When you look him up, David Ferry, he looks exactly like Joe Pesci. It's, it's quite scary and uncanny. And so did John Candy. He was chosen to play Dean Andrews because he looked like him. And I hardly recognised Gary Oldman. He looked like such a young man. Gary Oldman was in this film. And it took me a while to realise who it was. I forgot about John Candy. He was he was amazing in it. The, the only point I was going to make, coming back to the, you know, the sensationalisation of this particular theory and that courtroom scene. I did find it quite showy in so much as I didn't think there was a lot of back and forth with witnesses before Costner seems to deliver this final piece, which was long. There didn't seem to be any questioning after that. It might well be that there was, but that's just where they ended it because that was where, you know, it's like in the same way that Donald Sutherland reeled off everything to him, it's like he reeled off the entire thing in court and then that was that. Looking back on it now, I kind of thought, yes, it's a convenient way of delivering that in a Hollywood film but you kind of would have thought after that that wouldn't have been it the defence would have been back and forth And but I suppose like in all these courtroom scenes they have to build it up to this typical final piece I had a look at Costner and the films that he reeled out in this purple patch and it is phenomenal most people I think would have heard of a lot of these films so yeah. 1987 The Untouchables mm-hmm. 1988 Bull Durham, 1989, Field of Dreams. Classic, brilliant. 1990, Dances with Wolves. 1991, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. In the same year, JFK. 92, 
the bodyguard now yeah. after that yeah a perfect world which i love but not so big and then Wyatt Earp, and then it all went a bit pete tong for him after that but what a run you know he's still a titan of the cinema he'll still open a film but he hasn't really had any i think open range was a film that w- was well received and hidden figures of course was a film yeah. He was also played the dad in Molly's game. That's right. So it's almost like he's having, maybe he's starting to veer towards a bit of a renaissance. But I mean, all those films, I mean, I love all of those films. Yeah. And then Oliver Stone, I mean, he's directed many great films as well. Um, He's directed since 1971. These weren't his first films, but he's done Born on the Fourth of July, he's done Nixon, he's done Wall Street, he's done Natural Born Killers, Platoon. I forgot he did Platoon, actually. And and then he's got World Trade Center, all kind of political films, I would say. Last big film was Snowden. And then he's done also Putin interviews on TV series. Very political very gritty kind of films you get from him but they're all pretty good I have to say and he's about 74 now and he's still directing he's got three coming up he's got JFK Destiny Portrayed so that'll be one to watch uh, White Lies with Benicio Del Toro put my funny accent there I don't know why <laughs> Benicio del Toro, and it's apparently about divorce, so that that's an interesting angle. And then um, the Power Broker is the, another one. I tried to find out details of who is going to be in the JFK and the Power Broker, but doesn't share details at the moment. This film cost forty million to make. Probably majority of the cast took the, the takings there because there were so many famous people in this film, and it took two hundred and five million worldwide gross in dollars. So not a, a huge, huge film. But it's, I think most people have heard of JFK or have watched JFK. So, yeah. Well, we've got to rate, rate it then. We've got yeah, we're going to rate it. I know. Go on, you, you, you rate it first. I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it eight and a half out of ten. As I say, it is quite long. It's a lot of information flying at you, but it's put together so, so well. Costner, bang on form, great support cast, love the score. And even if some of it's sensationalized, who cares? To make this story with so much detail and minutia that has to be put across to the audience in such a immediate, compelling way turns what could be quite a stodgy, plodding political mm-hmm. drama into like a, a really, really engaging thriller. Yeah. I'm I'm going for the same actually. I um I can't add any extra words really on top of what you said. Exactly the same. Eight and a half from me. Right. Well, should we have a bit of Wonder Woman? <laughs> Wonder Woman in nineteen eighty four. Oh, you should have been in some of those early retro eighties. Hang on a minute. Let me turn around. <laughs> Let me just let me just get my let me get, let me get my lasso of truth out. <laughs> Blowing lasso. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> that sounds all wrong. Anyway, okay, so Wonder Woman 1984. Obviously, this is the follow-up to the reboot of the Wonder Woman franchise, starring Gal Gadot, or I don't know, maybe some people say Gal Gadot. Directed by Patty Jenkins, who returns after the first film. She is involved in the writing team for this film, whereas before Zack Snyder was one of the the key writers of the film. Apparently, this is supposed to be seen as a a standalone film, even though it's second in the series. But clearly, it does tie into the first one. So we open in Amazonia, Diana's home mythical island that she was born in and raised and 
we meet her as a young 12-year-old competing in some kind of ancient games against her much older opponents. It reminded me a bit of Gladiator, a bit of Harry Potter, a bit of Hunger Games, the, the, you know, these, these various tasks that they have to do which involve archery and equestrian riding horses and running and leaping all this kind of stuff through the different terrains on the island anyway she takes a shortcut she gets disqualified and hence she learns the importance of truth which of course is what provides her with the moral compass that that they are very keen to betray her with throughout this series so we flash then forward to 1984, so decades after World War One, which is where the first film took place. And here, director Patty Jenkins must have really enjoyed this part of the film because she treats us to these great retro references of fashion and cars and tech and pop culture in general. And our generation watching this, you know, it is hugely enjoyable. We see Diana as Wonder Woman saving the day in various ways whilst working as an anthropologist at the Smithsonian Institute. And of course, this is in Washington. And she specializes in ancient Mediterranean civilizations. Joining her staff, we have the clumsy, ditzy archaeologist Barbara Minerva, played by Kirsten Wig, who quickly idolizes Diana's beauty and confidence. And after a fraud robbery, the Institute comes in possession of this ancient artifact, which is later identified as the Dreamstone, with this Latin inscription, which Diana recognizes, um, but is not 100% sure where it's from. Unknowingly, she ends up drawing on the stone's hidden powers by wishing for her deceased lover, Steve Trevor, remember him, Chris Pine, to return, which she does, but in another man's body. And we also have Barbara, who wishes she could become strong and beautiful like Diana, which kickstarts her whole transformation, where her fashions and looks change as she wears fur coats and figure-hugging cocktail dresses. And she slowly starts to realize she's got this newfound strength, um, obviously, that's being drawn from Diana. So whilst all this is going on, Diana's also helping Steve become accustomed to life in the 80s. So we get these amusing, vignetted scenes of him trying to find an outfit to wear. That was the best. That was which, the best scene. Which, which <laughs> arguably arguably was the best. Uh, discovering like an escalator for the first time and, yeah. you know, modern aircraft, which all just kind of blows his mind. So, yeah, I mean, that part of the film was very enjoyable, I would say. Then, Meanwhile, we've got this desperate fell businessman, con man, guy called Maxwell Lord, played by Pedro Pascal, who people will know from The Mandalorian. Kindly pointed out to me by your husband, Chris, who was also watching the film with us, because I thought I recognised him from somewhere, who, anyway, he's desperate to prove to his young son that he can be a success. Um, And he wangles his way into the Smithsonian and gets his hands on the Dreamstone, and he wishes to become the stone, to actually be the embodiment of the stone. So as a result, he has the power to grant anyone's wishes by simply touching them. And in return, he can take whatever he desires, which first he basically turns his company into success and then he grants more and more wishes which allows him to and he eventually becomes the president of america of course he does diana and now steve quickly work out what's going on that he has this huge lust for power which he's obviously taking advantage of 
and he's starting to kind of unleash these wishing powers on the rest of the world, cutting deals. And he harnesses the power of this satellite <laughs> airwaves type technology that we, you know, they don't really explain too much about, but basically allows him to broadcast himself into every TV in the world, whilst also it acts as this tool where he's kind of virtually touching people. So anyone who watches is touching him, which allows him to tell everyone in the world, make, you know, think of a wish, make your wish come true. And slowly but surely, obviously, this turns into a complete disaster. The world's turned on its head. Diana does more investigation, realizes that the stone is this, has been created by this god of treachery and mischief, and that every gain made by the wish has a toll, a negative effect, which is why Diana is starting to lose her powers. And she's realizing that she's quite weak, you know, because they're being drained by Barbara. And by gaining Diana's powers, Barbara's losing her innocent moral compasses. So she's going going down this very dark path whilst Wonder Woman is trying to save the day, but let's just say struggling because she's not as strong as she thought. And Steve realizes that the, the only way to reverse the exchange is by renouncing the wish or destroying the stone. Steve realizes that his existence comes at the cost of Diana's power, and, but Diana's unwilling to renounce her wish because he doesn't, she doesn't want to say goodbye to Steve. As Barbara, of course, doesn't want to either. And then this builds to this climax where we have a weakened Wonder Woman up against Barbara, who's now transformed herself into this cat-like apex predator that's known as Cheetah. And this megalomaniac Max Lord intent on world domination whilst, you know, an apocalyptic global disaster is happening all around us. It sounds so complex when you read it back to me, when you say say it back to us. There's a lot actually that went on. (laughs) It's a lot that went on. When I was watching it, I didn't necessarily get all of this. But Mm -hmm. when I look back over the film and the notes to try and fill in some of the gaps when I was, you know, needing to maybe try and understand some of this stuff, uh, you know, that's probably why, I don't know, maybe I've just made it sound far more complicated than it is. But I was watching this and I think we were both, because this was the film we were watching in sync. So there were comments uh, that we were sending back and forth and there were moments (laughs) where we were like, like, what? (laughs) Like, you know, where did that come from? Oh, she could suddenly fly or suddenly wonder what can make things invisible. Anyway, I mean, yes, yeah, so, and um, and it it could be a Christmas film as well. That's right. That's right. There's a classic. <laughs> There's a Christmas scene, isn't there? There's a Christmas scene. There is a Christmas scene which does reveal part of the post credits usual teaser. So we won't go into that. I don't think we might as well leave that for the viewers. And obviously this is a new release, so I imagine hopefully a lot of people out there may have seen it. Well, so listen, I mean, we we talked about this not at obviously great length with a few chat messages when we were watching it, so now you get the chance to tell me exactly what you thought. Uh, right, well, it, to be honest, it's had very mixed reviews, hasn't it, from critics. It's um, It's got 5.5 out of 10 on IMDb. I've had a look around at what some other people have put as well. And Empire, Empire. Four out of five. I know, I'm astonished. And I was quite, wow. Did So uh, <laughs> Rob and I discovered what the rating was in Empire. And I'm going to be honest, we were a little bit stunned and we were wondering whether the person that reviewed the film was, was on Happy Pills or something because <laughs> you know what they did, 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 had a you know, slight different opinion. Do you know what they needed, the Empire reviewers? They needed the lasso of truth to pick yeah. up. To, to rewrite yeah. it, I, I but I did see that and I thought, oh, maybe I've maybe, maybe I've we, just... no, that's what we thought was happening. Yeah. Miss something because we were chatting or or what? Maybe we did. I don't know. Maybe we did. 
did miss something. But the whole sentiment and whole message was really be careful what you wish for. And for me, I wished for a better Wonder Woman sequel, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I'm so sorry, listeners. Um, but it was I was a little bit disappointed. The plot was weak. Steve Trevor, who's played by Chris Pine, died in the first film and then came back. And the hair, the hair, all right, they're looking 80s style. But even I, I love the, the fact that, that Chris Pine and Gal Gadot or Gal Gadot, they had the same hair colour. Did you notice that? There's Chris Pine was slightly greying and he looked like he had a toupee that was the same colour as Gal Dots hair, uh, which bothered me throughout the film. I just kept looking at his hair, a bit like the eyebrows in, in uh, Andrew Pesci in, in JFK. The clothing was was funny. It was eighties gear. I mean, I lived through the 80s and to be honest it's something the clothing wise I'd like to forget about and just move on it seems to be we constantly keep going back to the 80s I know the 1984 I believe that's when Wonder Woman kicked off isn't that right is that right when first Wonder Woman TV series was out oh crumbs I think I'm sure I read that somewhere I'm sure I read that somewhere anyway I did like seeing Kristen Wiig actually I think she was probably the the best character best actress (laughs) in the film I mean Wonder Woman just looked stunning throughout the film as well she didn't adapt to the 80s gear she seemed very modern and up to date I thought and I did ping Rob you on that I was thinking how come everybody else else is in 80s gear and she's in sort of present day outfits she she's you know she's onto something here (laughs) so and Pedro Pascal I mean I love him in the Mandalorian and I've seen him in the Kingsman he played whiskey in that he's been a baddie in Equalizer too and he's done plenty of TV like in Homeland CSI Game of Thrones I didn't realize he was in that as well and he was in recently We Can Be Heroes with a Netflix um, kids film as well but I just felt he played it he was probably told to do it this way but Maxwell Lord was very over the top kind of character and I didn't really empathise with him at all he was just re- he was mean but I just thought he had no time for his child and I didn't really I don't know it just it didn't resonate with him I totally agree you understood what the film was trying to say he's an embodiment of the 80s and whatever you want however you can you're entitled to it the whole 80s capitalist culture so you i kind of understood what they're trying to do with him but he wasn't exactly it's very two-dimensional even though they introduced his relationship with his son they kind of just threw that in it wasn't enough for you to kind of really root for him and whilst normally that wouldn't matter with this kind of film the whole point of this is this very moralistic message that runs through it and that's what made the first film so good it was just had a has a had a real goodness and charm and honesty to the first film which i really enjoyed mm. but i thought the way they tried to continue that theme in this just felt a bit half-baked just didn't seem as convincing or as told with as quite as much care maybe no. i don't know and some of the special effects weren't great either and i didn't get why they went off in an airplane just so he could have an experience in a, a more modern day airplane because he used to be a pilot that's a whole waste of five minutes going up in the sky and then <laughs> and just stealing a, a jet plane that he just rocks up to open and then flies for some fireworks yeah, as well. And it's, and like, 
Exactly. So, it sounds a strange thing to say for what is a superhero film, mm, but at times it just got a little bit ridiculous, didn't it? It did, it did. I, I mean, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Chris Pine's character kind of not knowing how things work, a little bit like Crocodile Dundee when he went from Australia to New York, I think it was, in Crocodile Dundee, and you've got the mummy as well. It's got it's got kind of snippets of, of that, I felt. The two best scenes for me were when they did the 80s clothing for, for Chris Pine, you know, him trying on different outfits and then the second best scene was actually when she turned evil she played a really good evil person Kristen Wiig in her uh, half cheetah half apex predator character and you saw her develop from a dorky researcher a little bit like Emma Thompson in uh, Harry Potter to a confident woman and then went just just grew and grew and got too confident and too self-obsessed and she was just getting more powerful and became this creature and I thought the fight scene the two <laughs> the, the two ladies fighting was quite entertaining and was good I thought the opening scene actually as well of the film was good I was quite excited when I saw that first scene oh this is what's to come but then it just kind of for me just went a little bit downhill unfortunately Gal Gadot uh, Gal Gadot is stunning as I've mentioned She's Israeli-born. Um, she's a singer and martial artist. She's even won Miss Israel in 2004 at the age of 19. And she plays Gazelle in the Fast and Furious series. So that's where she first shot to fame. But really, she went extra height when Wonder Woman kicked off and she's been in Justice League as well. But she's strangely done a couple of voiceovers. She's done The Simpsons and Ralph Breaks the Internet as well. And what she's got coming up is quite a few um, films on horizon, which includes Death on the Nile, another Justice League. There's Red Notice. There's Cleopatra, where she'll be stunning in that, no doubt. And another Wonder Woman 3. So please, please, Patty Jenkins, I know you're directing Wonder Woman 3. Please make it better for the next one but i do not want to put our listeners off i think listeners should tell us if you think differently and more in line with empire magazine and think that it's a better film than we think maybe we did miss something wrong yeah i I don't know whether i was just watching it i was just being a bit too cynical about things but i think i you know i did really like the first ones you know so like we don't like wonder woman because the first one was i thought really good you know we talked about this at the time that Zack snyder was involved in the writing for the first one and he wasn't involved in the writing for the second one and Patty Jenkins was involved I for me the whole central story in the writing for this I don't I think was a weakness I also thought that what was so good about the first one was the chemistry between Chris Pine and Gil Gadot because they shared so much screen time together and they met for the first time you know in the story and that rule really worked whereas this one it felt like you know he was just there plodding along with her for a bit you know he wasn't as big a part of the film so I think because there wasn't that chemistry I thought it really suffered from that actually and although Kristen Wiig's character was very good I, I I just didn't think she could rescue what was in my mind just a bit of a half-baked film and but like you say maybe we missed something mm. so I'm going to give this film simply I may have given it lower points actually but I think because it's it's colorful it's got some laughs in it and it's still got a bit of that superhero sort of enemy fights and special effects, but some of it wasn't as I would like to see. I'm going to give it a six, six out of ten. Woo! Do you know what? Is that no, it's not it's, the lowest? What was the lowest? <laughs> was it five and a half for Vertigo or something? Yeah. Was it really? Okay, that's, yeah. good. that's a good memory. Still, well, I'm actually going to be a bit more generous. I was going to say six and a half, just because... <laughs> 
I don't know whether I started hating this film too early and then I got wrapped up in everything that was bad about it without maybe just going with it and enjoying the bits that were good. So I suppose I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt on some of the things that would have otherwise... It's still still a a film to watch. As I said, you've got to get in the mood and the mindset that it's going to be some comedy in there. It's not like one of the deep, dark Batman movies that you would normally see. It's more comical. That's what made the first one so good. And that's what I love love about what they're trying to do with the character. I think that works really well. I just Mm. think they came up a bit short with this particular film because, like you say, it's going to be a third one. I wonder where the third one will stay in the 80s or move forward in the years. Well, they can't replicate the 80s. I mean, we've seen so many films over the last five years use the 80s as a way to draw in our age group, that whole sense of nostalgia, especially with TV, with Stranger Things. And it's kind of one of those things that I feel like in some ways they've jumped on it here and it does work. It's still a treat, but I think they can't do it again. And then, to be honest, that's the joy of the character, right? That she can, she's immortal. Well, I say that. Listen, <laughs> I'm no Wonder Woman expert. I'm assuming that she's immortal <laughs> on the basis that she Wonder finishes. Woman. Yeah, like, I don't know, maybe in the comics she eventually dies. I've got no idea because uh, I'm not, I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm not a fanboy of kind of comics series. So <laughs> I'm sure there may well be people listening to this saying, yeah, but you don't realize in the comic this happens and this happens but maybe but as a, as just someone watching it who you know likes superhero films and liked the first one yeah just came up short yeah okay cool so on to reviews for this week so should we relieve um relieve that's a completely wrong word who should we relieving? tell people relieve <laughs> <laughs> maybe i need to be relieved there are you now relieved <laughs> so so what's the new film for this week then rob the new film for this week the new release that we have gone for is a film that is getting good buzz on the reviews which is called one night in miami and it's a fictional account of one incredible night where icons muhammad ali malcolm x sam cook and jim brown gather discussing their roles in the civil rights movement and cultural upheaval of the 60s directed by regina king i've got to be honest i don't know this cast they're not huge names and i think we chose this primarily well it's on amazon prime so hopefully people can watch this without having to pay if you're subscribed to Prime. So that's always a plus for us. Often it's going to be Prime on Netflix, probably. And although it seems quite a heavy subject, I suppose, and we thought because it's getting a great reception, it's the one we've gone for because there, there were a few alternatives. We're trying to pick films that are a combination of if a big mainstream film comes along, a big tentpole movie like Wonder Woman, then obviously that's probably going to be the film we review. But where there aren't those big films, you get these slightly low-lying releases on Netflix, Amazon Prime that people may not have heard of. So this is our yep. pick for this week. Yep, great. And for the old movie, I have chosen Adventure. So we've had crime and thriller and, and horror already. And so Adventure is for next week. Adventure, it was reminds me of Indiana Jones for some reason. Yeah. I've got Indiana Jones music in my head right now. Yes, <laughs> it's true though. I think that's probably <laughs> quite common. If, if you said adventure films, I think that would da, come da, 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 Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is one of right. your favourite categories, isn't it, adventure? I've got 21. I will go for number three, please. The Beach. 
Oh, okay. The Beach. Yep. I've watched that recently, I think. I might have to watch it again. So this is this is the film, well, one of the films that really put Leonardo DiCaprio yeah. on the map, directed by Danny Ball. Well, same for Danny Ball to a degree. I mean, I think he may have been done Trainspotting prior to Danny this. Ball, it was around yeah. the same time. So The Beach is from the year 2000, and we have Richard, played by DiCaprio, who travels to Thailand and finds himself in possession of a strange map. Rumours state that it leads to a solitary beach paradise, a tropical bliss. Excited and intrigued, he sets out to find it. doesn't really tell you much, does it? But, um, yeah, great soundtrack to this as well. Mm, It's maybe, isn't it? A lot of maybe. Is it maybe? I think it's maybe. I just remember there being very of its its time. Yeah, no, it's good. So it's to rent or buy from Apple TV, Amazon, Sky Store, Rakuten, etc., etc. But do look on your TV channels because it may have been on Channel 5 or 4, etc. I, I did watch it just before Christmas time, so it's still maybe on Sky, the normal TV channels. And this is just under the two-hour mark, one hour 59, and One Night in Miami are other film people may be glad to hear this one hour, 31 minutes. So mm. that certainly helps. Good. So it'd be nice to see uh, a, a critic's choice film, really, isn't it? Yes, and I think when you know that it's got... I mean, for example, this has got five stars at Empire, rating highly on IMDb, et cetera, et cetera. It kind of goes back... I I wouldn't mind just finishing on this point because I think it's quite important. So often your enjoyment or lack of enjoyment from a film is based on many things, which is why one person can really like a film and another person may not or may just resonate with one person or another. One of those factors is expectation. You know, we know this film is critically rated, so you go in expecting it to be good. Often the film will just have a particular subject that you're interested in and some people may not be interested in. And often it's just a, you know, it's a message that's going to resonate with some people and others doesn't. So that is what I love about movies, that one film can completely touch someone in a way that turns another person off. I think that is the beauty Mm. of cinema. And that's why it's great to be watching new releases now, because we're not always going to watch a film that's five stars. It just so happens that's what's that's what we're doing this week. Yeah. Good. So uh, there's quite a lot on Netflix. We'll run through some of those films next week and Amazon Prime as well. Uh, So there's plenty to watch, actually, film-wise at the moment. Uh, We had quite a tough choice, didn't we, this week, what to go for. But that's the one we've gone for, uh, One Night in Miami. And looking forward to seeing the beach again. Absolutely. Cool. Right. Well, have another good lockdown week. Thanks very much, listeners. Thanks a lot. And I've got to get my quiz thinking cap on now because it's your your Um, turn next week without any rehearsals this time round, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Press record. I must remember to press record. (laughs) Excellent. Crikey. All right, then. We'll see you then. Cheers. Bye. Bye.